All right, tonight we are going to be in the book of Acts. If you want to go ahead and flip over there to Acts 1. It's kind of been, kind of become a uh, habit of ours whenever there's a fifth, a fifth Sunday um, for me to preach that Sunday night. And um, generally, our, our goal is just to uh, continue, continue on whatever uh, book we, we're studying. And um, in the future, Adam and I are probably going to do a little bit more tag, te- tag team teaching on Sunday nights. Uh, even as we head through the pastorals. But we have been taking a break from the pastoral letters after we finished First Timothy. And um, a couple of things came up. We did the family series, and then Easter came. And uh, so we were getting ready to eventually head back to the pastorals. Um, and I thought tonight we had a, a unique opportunity coming on the heels of Easter to talk about something that, um, at least at least in my mind, a lot of times in my life, gets gets kind of pushed to the pushed to the back burner. Um, and, and that is talking and thinking um, more about the ascension of our Christ. Um, if I asked you, um, what is the significance of the crucifixion, uh, what would you say? What's the, what's the importance of the crucifixion to us? Anybody at all? Okay, at the crucifixion, Christ died for our sin. Thank you, Ken, for going way out there on the limb. You, you, you went up strong for that. And uh, yes, at the crucifixion, Christ died for our sins. So there's great significance, obviously, in the crucifixion. Um, somebody want to go out even on a further limb and say, what's the significance of the resurrection? All right. And I know you know that Adam's sitting right there and he's about to go, oh boy, did I brick last week. Uh, what, uh, what's the significance of the resurrection? Why, is, why does the resurrection matter to us? Okay, it's the hope we have. Christ is resurrected and he's the forerunner. Uh, anything else? Okay, we're saved through his life. Very good. He's, if he's not alive, we don't, we don't have any life to hope in either. Um, someone want to use even any of the buzzwords that we used last week? How about, uh, in, thank you, Jonathan or David. <laughs> How about uh, imputed life? Anybody remember, remember that term? For, was it last week? Was it just last week? Yeah, just last week. Uh, imputed life. Um, in other words, we have Christ's life for us. That's what Ken was saying. Um, and what else? There was imputed life, and what else happens because of Christ's resurrection? Victorious life. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Ryan, for coming, coming through. Adam feels a lot better right at this moment. All right. <laughs> All right, so we, we know the significance of crucifixion. We think about the significance of the resurrection. And I'm not going to ask this tonight, but if I, just think about this. If I ask, what's the significance of the ascension... Uh, theologically, what would you say? Why does the ascension matter to you tonight? All right? And I think the answer to crucifixion, even answer to resurrection, might roll off our tongues a little bit easier. But when it comes to ascension, maybe we haven't really processed um, as much, at least I never had, um, really what the ascension is all about. And so it's a, it's a good opportunity for us coming on the heels of, of Easter. We've talked about resurrection, and we're kind of in a break time. So I thought it'd be good for us to consider Acts 1 and the Ascension. And I feel like I should explain, I mean, our typical pattern is to go book to book, and, and that's, a good, that's a good pattern to have. And I almost feel like I need to explain when we don't do that why we're doing that. Um, this, isn't, this isn't just a totally personal rant. It comes, I think it comes at an appropriate time following our talk on resurrection for us to consider Ascension. And um, so that's why we're taking this little diversion here to Acts. Okay, uh, let's read in, um, in Acts 1. We're just going to look at the first 11 verses and consider them together. Okay, let's read Acts 1.1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, 
appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you, have, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. All right, we're going to stop there. We are going to continue tonight through verse 11, but we'll stop, stop there for, for right now. Um, the book of Acts uh, comes to us as the history of, of the early church, and it's written by Luke, um, and really Luke is, a, is an excellent historian. Uh, he took pains um, to give us the gospel of Luke in, in good historical fashion, and now he does so with the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is really the foundation of the church. It's the groundwork for all that would come and rest upon it. Um, and these first verses are the foundation for all that's to follow throughout the rest of Acts. Okay, So these are the foundational verses on, on what the growth of the church is going to stand on. Um, and so really I'd like for us to just see two things tonight um, from these 11, 12 verses. Um, first, Christ's final earthly words establish his priorities. Okay, We're going to see an establishment of priorities. We're also going to see that his final earthly work establish his plan. All right? So his words establish what's important to him. And his last work is going to establish what his plan is for the church. And we're going to see that. All right, let's just start in verse number one. It says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Um, what is the first book that Luke is, is referring to? Okay, it's so referring to Luke. Uh, his, his first gospel. Um, and if we were to flip over to the book of Luke, which actually we're going to do a couple times tonight, so you might just want to have... Uh, Luke on your, on your fingertips. Um, Luke was very clear, even when he wrote the beginning of Luke, what, why he was doing what he was doing. Verse number um, 3 in Luke 1, uh, Luke wrote this. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. All right? So Luke's goal in writing his gospel was, I want you, Theophilus, to be certain, to be confident about the things that you have heard and the things that you have been taught. And now this book of Acts is just a continuation of that first book. All right? Acts is the second volume of Luke, which was the first volume. And it's very likely that they tried to fit Luke onto one scroll and Acts on another. All right? you, couldn't, you couldn't get all of them on one great big scroll. It would be too ginormous. And so really you just have two volumes. All right? And so uh, Luke says, in the first book, O Theophilus, uh, who's Theophilus? Well, we don't really know. Um, we don't have a whole lot of information on who this person Theophilus is. We just know it was somebody that Luke was concerned to be given correct information. We know he's a Christian because Luke, Luke tells him, you've been taught these things, and I just want to give you written record of these things that are true. All right? So we don't know a whole lot about Theophilus, but Luke is writing to him again. Um, and he says in the first book, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. All right? In the first book, in the first gospel, I dealt with, and when he says all that Jesus began to do and teach, does that mean that Luke is saying, I wrote down every single thing that Jesus did and every single thing that Jesus taught? Well, no. When he says, I, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach, he's, he's saying, I covered the scope of Jesus' life and ministry. So he talked about Jesus doing miracles, even though we know that Luke didn't write down every single miracle that Jesus did. But he wrote down that Jesus did miracles. He wrote about Jesus' teaching, the heart of Jesus' teaching. Um, and so he wrote about these things. The interesting thing about this verse is that he says, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Um, and now he's, if he's saying that his first gospel is what Jesus began to do, and now in the second book, then by insinuation he's saying Jesus is going to continue to do work. All right? And that's what has led some people to 
instead of calling Acts, Acts of the Apostles, you guys um, on your Bibles, want, are you on that first page? You might say up at the top, Acts of the Apostles. All right, some people have um, decided to better term it, the continuing words and deeds of Jesus by his Spirit through his Apostles. All right, it's, it's the Acts of Jesus through what the Apostles had done. Because Luke here says, I, I started to tell you in the first book all that he began to do up until the point of the ascension. Here's what he says in verse number two, until the day when he was taken up. And if we were to flip over to Luke, and let's go ahead and do that, flip over to the very end of Luke, Luke 24, um, we'll see that, that this is exactly accurate. This is exactly what um, Luke had done in his first gospel. In Luke 24:50. we read about Christ. He led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up in heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. That's how the book of Luke ends. All right. Um, now, you've read that. Don't tell anybody at Grace Community that, that that's how it ends because Pastor John's preaching, preaching that. And so in about 18 years, they're going to get there. So don't spoil the end for them. But um, in the end, Christ descends. He goes, he goes back in heaven. And, and beginning of Acts, Luke says, look, I, this is what I told you. It, it got up to this point till the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit the apostles whom he had chosen. And, and this is really the first mention um, that shows the priority of Christ. Um, there, there are three things that Christ shows in his final words of his priorities. His first is the apostles, right? This is the priority of Christ. Um, we're going to see this. Um, the first is the apostles. The second is his, his priority of the Holy Spirit. And the third is his priority of personal witness, all right? So uh, he first starts to give attention to the apostles. And, and it says, through the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen. All right, um, Christ himself was the one who personally picked the apostles. He, he selected them. It was, it was his choice of who those apostles would be. In fact, verse number 3 tells us, to them, who's, who's the them? In verse 3, to them he presented himself. Who's the them specifically? Okay, the apostles, all right? So we know that Christ appeared to a lot of different people, but Luke's point in verse 3 is to the apostles... Christ personally presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs. Okay? And we're on the heels of, resur- of, of Easter, and so we've thought about resurrection. You've probably read through some of these passages. You know about these many proofs that he has done after his suffering, his passion, Luke says. Um, he presented himself alive to his apostles specifically, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And something I said made all the babies cry at the same time. Um, Christ appeared to his apostles because he prioritized his apostles. Um, he wanted to lay the foundation of the apostles because the apostles, Ephesians 4 tells us, tells us are what? The foundation for the church to grow on. All right? and, and we still continue today in apostolic doctrine. All right? In fact, if we were to present a doctrine other than the apostles, what does Paul say should happen to us? Okay, you're to be condemned. You're to be accursed. If you present a, a gospel that's different than what the apostles have delivered to us. So we still continue today in apostolic doctrine, in the apostolic gospel. Because the apostles laid the groundwork for the church in what they taught and also in the choices that they made. All right? The apostles were God's chosen representatives um, to establish the foundation of the church. And it was a priority of his. And that's why he appears, that's why he picked them personally, and that's why he presented himself to them personally. All right? He prioritized them. He cared about the apostles. Um, and he wanted to both guarantee that he was alive and also teach them about the kingdom of God. 
Um, so we can even stop there and ask for a point of application. Um, Christ prioritized the apostles. So what does that what does that mean for us? Well, that means that still today we should still care about the apostles, about the decisions they made, and about the teaching that they gave. Um, we to this day. Um, we don't go out on our own and have some kind of, we don't look for rogue teaching, uh, novel ideas. Uh, we're still trying to just continue in what the apostles have already taught. All right? So what we, what we do today, even as a church, um, we, are, we are not into being creative when it comes to teaching. Um, we're into maybe using creative methods, but we're not into creating a new message. All right? We're just continuing in what the apostles have already said. Um, Christ prioritized them. He's the one that chose them. He's the one that set them up, and so now we just follow. We stand on their shoulders and follow what they have already said. All right? Christ cared about the apostles, and we should too. Um, we're not out to invent new doctrine. not out to come up with some um, great new idea that we think is better than what we have in our New Testaments. We're just continuing in what we have laid out before us in the New Testament. Um, and we're, we are trusting that the words that the apostles have given to us, or they authorize people to write down messages, um, we're, we, are, we are trusting that this message is all we need for the church. And that's why we don't go seeking other messages. We have apostolic doctrine that we still rely on today. All right? So, um, Christ, his final words show that he established in his actions, they, they established his priority of the apostles. And look at verse number four. Um, it says, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. Uh, that word staying in, in verse four kind of has, has more of the idea of of fellowshipping, and specifically when it comes to fellowshipping around a table, all right? So it has the idea he was staying with them, he was eating with them, he was spending time with them. Um, while he was doing that with the apostles, Christ ordered the, the apostles not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, all right? What's the promise from the Father that Christ is referring to? Okay, Holy Spirit, anyone know any any specific passages that back back that up? Very good, John 14. Let's go ahead and flip over there. It's just a couple pages away. Uh, John 14 contains the, the promise from Christ. Um, his disciples are worried. They're troubled. Um, beginning, of ver- uh, beginning of 14, Christ says, Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. He's, he's trying to encourage them. They know that he's about to leave. Um, and in verse number 15, Christ says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Um, again, talking about he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Um, verse number 26, But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. All right? The, the Holy Spirit was God's personal promise to the apostles. He, he guaranteed that the Spirit would come to help them, to guide them into truth, and to bring everything to the remembrance that Jesus had already taught them. Okay? Because the apostles were about to be without Jesus. And, I mean, that was a devastating thought to them. He, they'd been with him day in and day out uh, for three years. And they received their teaching from him. And so they were concerned about, I'm not going to have someone to continue to teach me because my Lord is going to be gone. And they're also concerned that three years of teaching, I'm going to forget a lot of stuff. Um, and so how could I possibly remember all these really important things that Christ has already told me? They need help. And so Christ said, I'll send you the Holy Spirit. He'll teach you, and he'll also bring all things to your memory. I'm going to, I'll, I'll divinely help your memory um, so that you can recall what I have already taught you. 
And so this was the personal promise of Christ to the disciples, and it shows that, that he prioritized sending the Holy Spirit. He says, oh, look, I order you not to depart from Jerusalem. I want you to wait for the promise of the Father, which you heard from me, verse 5, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. All right? Uh, the comparison there is between the earthly, very physical um, putting water, putting someone into water, and and the very spiritual putting the Holy Spirit completely on the apostles. All right? He said, look, I, and you already knew this. This was already prophesied. John, John did his baptism with water. My baptism is going to come with the Holy Spirit. And so he said, I want you to wait, and I want you to wait in Jerusalem. And uh, there's probably a couple reasons that Christ had to tell the disciples that they had to wait in Jerusalem. What are some reasons the disciples would not have been so happy to uh, sit around Jerusalem? What's the, what's the climate in Jerusalem right now? We're talking right after the resurrection. I mean, what just happened to Christ? They were so happy with him that they crucified him. And, I mean, we, we know a lot about Peter's denial, um, and, and we, think about, we think about that that time in Peter's life, and it's kind of a disgraceful time. And yet it's also a very understandable time, right? I mean, they're about to crucify his Lord. What do you think they're going to do to him? Um, so we understand why Peter did what he did, even though he was wrong. And we understand why after the crucifixion, the disciples, how did they respond after the crucifixion? What, when Christ keeps making his resurrection appearances, how does he always find the disciples? He finds them hiding in locked rooms, scared to death, all right? Which is totally reasonable because there are people out there looking to kill you. Um, and so Christ has to say to them, look, I don't want you to leave Jerusalem. In fact, I want you to sit tight until you get the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is going to come at Pentecost. Um, somebody else want to tell me, um, it's been 40 days. Um, we know it's 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension. How many more days, um, until the Holy Spirit comes? Okay, 10 more days. And that's because the word Pentecost is a word for what? Okay, 50. That's right. It's a celebration that comes 50 days after Passover. Um, and so it's, and I mean, we can chart this exactly because we know, we know when Christ died at, at which point in the Passover. And so we know when Pentecost was. Um, and so Pentecost is coming 10 more days. And Christ says, um, I want you to sit tight for just a little bit while longer until you receive the promise of the Father. He doesn't want them to leave because the Holy Spirit's going to come at a very specific location at a very specific time. And that matters to Christ. He wants them to have the Holy Spirit. He wants, he wants what happened in the day of Pentecost to happen. And so he tells the apostles, hey, you've got you've to sit tight. All right? and, and so Christ establishes priorities of his apostles and also of his Holy Spirit. In verse number 6, we read, So when they had come together, and as the idea, they kept on coming together. Um, and so they kept meeting with the Lord again and again. So they've come together yet another time. And they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? All right. Um, a lot of people have kind of said, man, where did the disciples come up with this question? You know, how, how did they get this out of the blue? There's actually some very good reasons that they asked about the kingdom. Uh, what's one good reason? It's straight from the text. Why would they be concerned about the kingdom? You can even look. You're loud. I'm sorry, what? Okay, good. They're, they're looking for Christ to be their king. He's resurrected now. Um, good. What else? Straight, straight from the text. Even in verse 3. Okay, Christ has been talking about it a lot. It's what he spent his public ministry talking about the kingdom. 
Remember John the Baptist kept saying, the kingdom of God is near, the kingdom of God is near. And then Christ came and said, kingdom of God is not near, kingdom of God is here. Um, and so Christ spent all his time talking about the kingdom. It's the single topic he talked about the most, talked about the kingdom. And for those 40 days, those important 40 days when Christ was resurrected, he kept speaking to them about the kingdom of God. And so this is a topic that's been on their minds. It's been on Christ's tongue. He keeps talking about it. And so very reasonably, it's been a topic of discussion. And so they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? There's also a theological reason that they would have said, been concerned about the kingdom. Um, that's because they knew their Bibles. And actually, uh, Joel 2 and Ezekiel 36 directly connect the coming of the Spirit with the coming of the kingdom. All right? It's a direct connection in Joel 2, Ezekiel 36. When I pour out my spirit, then I'm going to establish my kingdom. And Christ just said, kept talking about the spirit, and kept, say, uh, kept talking about the kingdom, and kept saying, I'm going to send my spirit. And so their minds went, Joel 2, Ezekiel 36. Oh, uh, if the spirit's coming, kingdom must be coming. And Christ keeps talking about the kingdom. And so they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? A couple parts of their question. They say, will you at this time, so is it now, is it immediate, that you will restore the kingdom to Israel. Uh, so obviously, when they talk about restoration, they're thinking about a political and territorial kingdom that existed before. And they want to know if that kingdom is going to be restored to Israel. So obviously, they're thinking about a national kingdom. In their minds, kingdom means a politically, ethnically restricted, geographically located kingdom. That's what's running through their brains when they hear about kingdom. And Christ's answer is really interesting. Christ says to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. All right? um, you know what you don't see in Christ's answer? You, you don't see in Christ's answer the answer, that's a crazy idea that the kingdom would be literal and that the kingdom would be physical. Um, what are you talking about? No, my, my kingdom is, is just spiritual and ethereal and, and there's no such thing as a literal physical kingdom. All right, this would be a great time for Christ to correct their misconception if there was no such thing as a, as a literal physical kingdom that, that involved geography and then involved a location. But Christ doesn't do that. Instead, he says, look, it's not for you to know the when. All right? Christ never denies that there's a literal physical kingdom. And he says, it's not for you to know when, uh, the times that Father has fixed by his own authority. But this is my priority. My priority is verse number 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You see what Christ prized were establishing the apostles, sending the Holy Spirit so that he could have witnesses for his name. All right? Christ cared about personal witness. And he said, I'm going to give you power through the Holy Spirit. And then you're going to be witnesses, eyewitnesses, in, starting in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and even to the end of the earth. Because that's, this is Christ's final attention saying, this is what I'm, this is what I'm concerned about. Christ doesn't say, I'm concerned about setting up an earthly kingdom right now. He says, I'm concerned that you be witnesses about me. This is a priority from Christ. Uh, some of the last words we have from him that show that, that what, he, what he is concerned about is witnesses. And, and that's why I say these first couple of verses in Acts are foundational for the rest of Acts. Because the apostles are going to do work through the Holy Spirit to be witnesses to Christ from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And that's what the whole book of Acts is going to unfold. It's going to tell the story of how the apostles and the power of the Spirit spread the gospel to the whole world. Okay? That's what's going to happen in Acts. So this is just the foundation. All right? um, if I can, I'd like to take just a, a, brief, uh, a brief rabbit trail 
and um, and I'm just going to admit up front, this is a little bit uh, pet peeve, and it's and it's always a little dangerous um, when you're speaking to, to do pet peeves. Um, but I think this is an important pet peeve um, because this is one of those verses that a lot of times gets um, morphed into something that it, that it isn't. All right, so this is just a little off the, on, on the side Bible study uh, tidbit for you tonight. All right, um, when Christ says, "I want you to be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth," um, geographically. Um, Jerusalem starts is the heart of it, and then you've got Judea, which is a little more expanded, and then you've got Samaria, which was on the outer edge of Judea, and then you've got the ends of the earth. And a lot of times this verse is kind of taken as like the model for, model for missions or the model for evangelism, and so people are asked questions like, are you reaching your Jerusalem? And then are you leaving your Jerusalem and reaching your Judea? All right, so are you, are you ministering the gospel to your neighbors, and then are you ministering the gospel to people in other counties? Are you ministering to your state? Are you ministering to America? Are you ministering to the world? Okay? Um, that's, that's not at all what's going on in this verse, um, because what's going on in this verse is the apostles are being told to minister in Jerusalem. And that, that doesn't mean your Jerusalem, wherever that happens to be. That means the very literal, very physical, actual Jerusalem. And so if you were going to say, I'm going to implement this verse as mandate for my missions, then you're going to have to leave uh, Kingsburg or Reedley or Dinuba, wherever you are, and move to Jerusalem because that's what the verse says. It says Jerusalem, and those are very actual places. And it hurts us, it hurts our understanding of these verses to just kind of spiritualize this to, well, you just need to reach out to people locally and then more globally and more globally uh, because then you miss what this verse is actually saying. This verse is actually saying that, that the disciples are going to start in Jerusalem and then extend to the ends of the earth. And so the application for us today, at which point are we in this process we're getting to the ends of the earth, all right? I mean, at this point, the apostles don't even know that America exists, all right? And hopefully that's not a shockwave to anybody either, all right? America's not in this verse, all right? Except in the ends of the earth, and that's where we are now, um, trying to pursue the gospel to the, to the ends of the earth, to the, outer, to the outer expanses. That's us now, all right? So the gospel still does need to go to the end of the earth, and yet so many times we get American-centered, and uh, so America's the center, and the ends of the earth is, is wherever's farthest away from America, all right? And such is not the case, biblically speaking, all right? So, pet peeve over. I just wanted, want us to be uh, clear on that, that this is not um, mission strategy 101 for us today, what Christ is saying. Christ is telling disciples, I want you to start here and then expand. And now that expansion has gone to the ends of the earth, and that's why people in America, so far removed from the Middle East, have the gospel, because the apostles obeyed these verses. And, and that kind of understanding really influences a lot of how we look at the book of Acts, um, because it, the book of Acts is a, is a description of what happened in history. And yet it's, in our search for application in the book of Acts, it's easy for us, as we want to apply, to, to look at Acts as the prescription for what we're supposed to do. Um, and, and we will get ourselves in a lot of trouble if you look at the book of Acts as prescription for what the for what you need to do, all right? Because we see the church doing things in Acts that we are never continually commanded to do. We see that we see things happening in the church that, that don't happen today. We see a structure that is that is growing that eventually became solidified. Um, there are a lot of things in Acts that are in development. There are a lot of things that are in transition, um, and these are not things that apply to that in the same way to us today. So. As we look at the history of the church growing, there, there's certainly application to be made. There's certainly lessons to be learned. And yet we're not looking for the prescription, okay, he told them to go to Jerusalem. I need to go to my Jerusalem, all right? 
uh, this was actually Jerusalem where they were supposed to go. So um, he tells them to do that, and, and he shows that he prioritizes personal witness, all right? Christ cares. And I think that's a better application for us to make tonight. Christ cares that we be witnesses to him, to be witnesses to his name, to be witnesses to what he has done. We are no longer eyewitnesses like the apostles, and yet we are witnesses to what he's done in our hearts, and we are in agreement with the apostles' eyewitness, right? We say they were right. When they said that Christ came back from the dead, they weren't just telling idle tales. It was true. Christ really did come back from the dead. So we continue to be witnesses to the power of Jesus' name. And that's something that needs to be ongoing. So we still care about the apostles' doctrine. We care very much that we have the power of the Holy Spirit energizing what we do. And we care very much about personal witness. These were priorities that Christ um, presented even with his final words. All right? With his final works, Christ is going to demonstrate. He's going to establish his plan. And so in verse 9, we read that when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Can you imagine just the shock of what's going on here? I mean, in a day and age when you don't have planes and, and rockets and all these things, um, to see a, a human being just slowly be lifted up into the clouds and disappear. Um, their shock must have been um, just amazing. Um, and this, this cloud that is talked about, a lot of people argue, what exactly is this cloud? Um, is it just a white fluffy thing, or is it kind of the glowing Shekinah glory of God? Um, and the answer is, there's nothing in the text that would give you an indication one way or the other. There's just not. Um, but we do know that, for instance, the cloud that accompanied the Mount of Transfiguration was the bright and glowing glory. We do know when Christ returns that there is going to be the bright glory of a cloud. So we could say this, this might be a bright and glowing cloud. It might just mean he went up behind the clouds. Regardless, Christ was ascended. This is the historical account of what actually happened. Christ ascended. He went up from earth, up into the sky. All right? This is just as historically true as the resurrection is. And yet this is just as historically attacked um, as is the resurrection. Um, listen to what a couple people have said about the ascension. The legend of the ascension of Jesus grew out of the early church's desire to have some explanation as to why their Lord's appearances had ceased. Their faith rose to the occasion. But basically, the ascension has no significance at all because it's the fruit of wishful thinking. Okay? That's, uh, that's one thought. Here's another one. Uh, this, is, this takes the sarcastic route of questioning the ascension. Uh, it is questionable whether even St. Luke himself for all his known tendency to materialize, was so literal-minded as to imagine that Jesus went up vertically and sat down a few miles above the visible sky. All right? He's using total mockery. Surely Luke didn't really mean that Christ went up into the sky and then sat down at some throne somewhere. Um, and yet, biblically speaking, we'd have to say that's exactly what Luke was saying. Luke was saying that Christ's body, just like it physically came out of the grave, it physically went up into the air and disappeared. That was the historical account of the ascension. And we don't have any other historical accounts of the ascension to rely on. We, we just have this. And yet, we have lots of other reasons to know that the ascension is true. For instance, you have the prophecies by Jesus that this was going to happen. Right? Uh, we don't have a whole lot of time, so let me just read John 20:17. Um, John 20:17. Um, Jesus says to Mary while she is clinging to him after his resurrection, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Christ, Christ said this was going to happen. All right? He said I'm going to ascend. 
Um, and at least four other places earlier in John, he said the same thing. Um, I'm going to go to my father, and you're not going to see me anymore. Right? Christ predicted it, um, and, and this is reality. Uh, if we're going to believe our Bibles, we have to believe that Christ actually physically, literally ascended up into the sky. All right? He really did do it. Um, verse number 10, um, while they were gazing into heaven as he went, the apostles are gazing, has the idea of like staring with your mouth open or staring intently. Maybe they're kind of waiting like, he's going to come back. Is this just, uh, he's going up there. He's, what's happening here? Uh, while they're gazing, while they're staring, uh, two men stood by them in white robes, no doubt angelic messengers. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? All right. I talked to the kids last week about funny questions angels ask. Because um, the angels at the resurrection, they're in the tomb, and the women come. And you know what the question that the angels ask in Luke is? Why do you seek the living among the dead? Which is just a hilarious question for the angels to ask. Why are you looking for a living person in a grave? Like, that's dumb. Uh, and they ask kind of the same question here. Um, why do you stand looking up into heaven? And like, the angels come down. There's nothing for the apostles to see. Christ is already gone. And they're just staring there, up into the sky, a bunch of stargazers in the middle of the day. And the angels are like, what are you doing? Um, Why are you staring up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. All right? The the angels say, there's there's no need for you to sit around staring up into the sky for this Jesus. Because the same Jesus, the same same one that you've just seen, he went up in heaven, he's going to come back down. All right? And the apostles obviously understand because in verse... 12, they return to Jerusalem, and they continue to wait for the Holy Spirit. All right? Now, so what? Uh, so what of the ascension? All right? Why does, it, why does it matter? Let me just give you a couple reasons that the ascension really does matter and should matter to you. All right? First of all, when you realize that, that Christ's first coming is over, the ascension ended the disciples' watchfulness for him to come again. He's gone. And he's not going to go up and come back down. He's not going to keep bouncing back and forth like a, like a yo-yo. Christ is gone. All right? His body's gone. And he's not coming back until his second coming. All right? His first coming, it's over. It's done. It marks an, an end of this stage. All right? It's, it's obviously finality um, to this point. And flowing directly from that first idea that his first coming's over, um, which just as a side note, um, we do not need to be a people who continue to, to look for Jesus to make personal random appearances to us. Um, he's already left. His, the angel said he's left. He's gone. He made his ascension. So he's not going to appear to you uh, in your dreams or in your toast or anything else that people are saying that Jesus does these days. He's gone, okay? Uh, his first coming's over. Secondly, he's exalted, though. Uh, the time of Christ's humility, it's over. It's done. Um, 1 Peter 3.22. Um, like I said, we don't have any historical... Uh, any other historical accounts of of the ascension, but we do have the assumption of the ascension everywhere else in the New Testament. First Peter three twenty two. Uh, listen to these words, talking about Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, talking about the ascension. He has gone into heaven, and he's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. You see, angels, authorities, and powers have all been put under Christ. And no longer, no longer has he laid aside his right to exercise his divine powers. He is now exalted. He has now returned to his exalted state. And, and that time of, of servanthood and of lowliness, it's over. It's done. And so the Christ we worship tonight, the Christ we worship tonight, we worship him because of the humility he displayed as a man 
And yet we, we should never suffer in the delusion that that's still how he is. No, our Christ now is the ascended, exalted Christ. And we bow before him now. We, we worship him who has the exercise of every power that God has, who is now completely free, um, no, longer, no longer bound to be, to be limited like he was on earth. All right? He is exalted now. He's returned to heaven. Uh, he has returned to heaven, so his first coming is over. He's exalted. And also he has begun his work of intercession. Christ was implementing his plan. His plan was to go back to heaven, to be exalted, to begin his work of intercession. He enters heaven as the one whose sacrifice has been accepted and who accomplished the purpose that he had to do. We actually looked at this on Wednesday night um, from the book of Hebrews. And now he is a great high priest who ever stands in heaven for us. All right, His work of intercession has begun. That's his plan, to go to heaven. The amazing thing we talked about on Wednesday night was that Jesus prays for you, if you're a believer. It, it, Hebrews, Hebrews um, 7.25, 8.1-4, just directly tell you that. Jesus prays for you, if you're a believer. Um, he has started that work of intercession. Um, his ascension shows that his supremacy is settled. Um, there can never be any, any more doubt, any more question. The same Christ who was resurrected is ascended, and his supremacy is absolutely settled. Um, just as importantly, the ascension made his present work through the Holy Spirit, possible. All right? You know what John 16, 5-7 say? Again, in another classic passage about the Holy Spirit. Listen to these words. Listen to what these words tell you, what would not happen if Jesus would not be ascended. John 16, 5. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me where you're going. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, what? The helper will not come to you. So guess what? No ascension, no Holy Spirit to come and help the apostles and no Holy Spirit to come help us. All right? It's to our advantage that Christ goes away. All right? Instead of having um, a body where, where Christ was confined to a body, he was, in, he was in one place at one time on earth. He really was. That's part. He gave up his prerogative to individually decide when he would be every place in space as god always is he was in a body instead of there just being a centrally located christ we now have the holy spirit who is in the hearts of every believer and this is to all of our advantage so we aren't we aren't making pilgrimages to wherever jesus body is so we can hear words from his mouth we have the holy spirit now okay so that's great advantage for us that christ has ascended um his present work through the holy spirit is possible and lastly he is gifting to the church has begun. Ephesians 4.8 says that, that when Christ was ascended, he led captivity captive. He's now ascended on high, and he gave what? Gifts to men. And what were the gifts to men in Ephesians 4.8? Some apostles, some prophets, some pastor teachers, etc. All right, so because Christ was ascended, he could give gifts to men, gifts in the form of apostles and teachers. All right, so the ascension has drastic ramifications for us as a church. Um, it has, has drastic ramifications in history. Um, it guarantees that we have victory over all our enemies and that Christ had victory over all his. It guarantees you that you have an advocate at the Father's right hand right now because your Christ is ascended. Um, and, it, and it guarantees that that same Christ who is ascended will come again. And that's what the angels said, right? They said the same Jesus, he's going to come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. A lot of people, I mean, including me, uh, prophecy is kind of a scary thing, and there's a lot of details about prophecy we're not real sure about, and uh, so you can get in a lot of hesitancy. There's something that you do not need to have any hesitancy about whatsoever when it comes to prophecy, okay? Something that you can bank on, 
something I guarantee you tonight, and that is that Jesus is coming again, bodily, physically, he's returning to earth. Okay? He's going to do it. And he's going to do it in the same way that he went up. He's going to come down with his body, with a cloud, only when he comes back, he's going to come back in power and glory. And so the ascension even gives us an insight and it gives us hope into what the second coming is going to look like. Um, and when he comes the second time, he's going to come in the full demonstration of his power and his authority. And he is going to establish his kingdom, the kingdom that he talked about so long that is now in, in our age and in our day, he is ruling over our hearts. He is going to come a second time and he's going to establish an actual physical literal kingdom. All right? We can look forward to that because of the ascension. So does the ascension matter to you? Absolutely it does. Um, absolutely. It has theological ramifications and it has practical ramifications. And at the very least tonight, um, what, what I should be doing and what you should be doing is, is changing our worship of Jesus to instead of just thinking about him and his humility and his condescension, we should be worshiping him in all of his exalted greatness. Because right now he sits in power and glory at his Father's right hand. And he's someone that we should bow down to. And we should worship him as Lord. And we should give personal witness to him for his great might. Because he is God's Son. He is exalted over all. And he's coming again. And so now we should be working for him. Now we should be making our every effort to be personal witnesses to him. The one who's coming again in the same way that he left us. He's coming back in that same bodily form something we can look forward to, something we can delight in tonight, and something that we can work even as we wait for that to happen. Okay? Does the ascension matter? Absolutely it does.